Good morning. Um, my name is Lily, and today I'm going to be reading from this, like, the 84th Psalm. And to follow my scripture, here, there we go. Well, not my scripture, but on the screens, right, and the left, and the right. Okay, a psalm from the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As those go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Thank you. Earlier this year, in the world's largest country, the Chinese government passed a law that allows parents to sue their children if they don't visit them enough. And perhaps if your children have left home or you're, you're growing a bit older and you're wondering about your future, you may be thinking right about now, well, that sounds pretty good. My kids should visit me more often. Or uh, on the other hand, if that's not you and you're, you're younger like a lot of us are, you may be thinking, well, that's, that's kind of bizarre. You mean to say, Morgan, that millions of parents can legally sue their kids essentially for not coming home for Christmas? Yeah. And well, what's happening? Because you're right, if you're thinking that, the, the Chinese, you see, have put into law a mandated respect for parents, for the elderly. And the reason that sounds sort of bizarre would probably never happen here in America is because we live in an age, and you know this, of unbridled scorn of anything older, ancient, elderly. And anything old, anything not produced by our cultural moment right now is seen as dated, regressive, maybe even dangerous. And why is this? Well, cultural anthropologists back in the 17, said back in the 1700s that a, a whole lot of different European kind of values, to borrow a phrase from Ghostbusters, crossed the streams and essentially shot out this massive cultural tidal wave we ride on today called America, which believes that human reason and scientific progress alone are all we need to create the world we want. All right. Now, while it's true that science, human reason are amazing, have produced massively good, great things, I mean, think about urban planning, uh, medicine, telecommunication, with all that in mind, let me ask you now. Are we happier as a people than we were even a hundred years ago? Despite the fact that we are, in general, far less sick, uh, life expectancy is up, infant mortality is down, study after study shows that, in specific, Americans are massively more depressed and more easily emotionally fatigued 
as a people now than we were even 50 years ago. Now let's look at this this briefly, this happiness infographic. Yes, you get a happiness infographic today. Found this on Business Insider, and what you can see there is orange and red, bad. (laughs) Green, good. These are nations in the world, and you can see that you, the U.S. and Russia in particular look pretty unhappy, which may explain a lot of the news these days. But look at the, a number of the nations that are green, where they are. Does this surprise you? These are the happiest nations in the world. It surprised me. I mean, why is it with far more economic educational opportunity than we've ever had as a nation, why are we less able to deal with life than our ancestors were? or even than people who have far less materially than we do. Why are we more unhappy than ever? And here's why. Because the Bible has made the audacious claim that human happiness is far less connected to external circumstances and is far more a result of your inner life. In other words, authentic, fundamental Lasting happiness is not circumstantial, but spiritual. Say it again. Fundamental, authentic, lasting happiness in life is not circumstantial, the Bible says, but spiritual. You don't believe me? Sound too good to be true? Let's look at the practically spiritual wisdom of Psalm 84 as it talks about the idea of Christian happiness. And uh, today, if you are fond of sermons that begin with, uh, with points that all begin with the same letter, today is your day. All right. Here we're going to look at the possibility of happiness, the power for it, practice of it, and finally, the person of happiness. Let's begin here with just looking at the possibility of happiness because not once, not twice, but three times in Psalm 84, it says something like this. It says, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And the word blessed there is the Hebrew word esher. It's the word that means literally happy. Literally happy, content, fulfilled. And this is saying there's a way of living. There's a way of going about life. There is the possibility of being a kind of person who is happy. Let me ask you, are you happy today? Don't answer. Would the people around you, nearest to you, closest to you, would they say, man, that person, you, are a happy person? Are you fulfilled? Are you content? And I hope you don't think the questions beneath you are just something borrowed from a motivational speaker seminar somewhere or a really great TED talk. And, and here's why. Because the Bible in general, the Psalms in specific, talk about this subject, the, uh, the subject of, of happiness, of blessedness over and over again. I mean, think of the very first word of the Psalms, right? I mean, how do the Psalms begin? Psalm 1-1. This was drilled into me in my private school upbringing. Uh, uh, what does Psalm 1-1 begin with? Blessed is the man. Happy is the one. The very first word of the Psalms are about this. And you, you can make the case that, in fact, the Psalms in general are about this at their core. They're about holding out to you the staggering possibility that happiness is possible in this life right here, right now for you today. And the Psalms are all about showing you how to get it. Now, some of you, especially from a, uh, from a non-Christian background, when you hear this, you may stagger a little bit when you hear that happiness is possible. And to a certain extent, you're thinking correctly because the premise 
that happiness is possible. Well, let's just admit it. It sounds kind of too good to be true. And you may be saying, Morgan, you know, I, I've lived a little bit or I've lived a lot. And, or you don't know what I'm going through or who I'm married to or who my kids are or who my boss is. And I'm not convinced that what the Bible says here is true. Morgan, look at the world. There's a lot of unhappiness out there. And even the longer I live, Morgan, unhappier I seem to get. And if that's you this morning, you're not alone. Because many of the world's greatest thinkers, writers, poets, songwriters, throughout history, over time, have said the same thing. And let me put that thought or the tension here in the form of a question to you. And I'll definitely date myself firmly as a Gen Xer here as I do it. Let me ask you, is life more like the movie Titanic or the TV show Friends? Is life more like Titanic or Friends? And you may be saying, Morgan, neither, because if either of those were like real life, then apparently only white people would exist. (laughs) Fair point. Except for that, like, one guy Rachel dated, I think there was one brother on there at some point, but it's not what I mean. I mean this. I mean this. Is life more like Titanic Right, a tragedy where everybody's on a doomed voyage and dies tragically in the dark. Or is it more like friends? Where, yeah, you know, you got some hang-ups, but with a little help from your friends, you make it through it. Everybody gets married in the last season, and life goes on happily ever after. Now, we need, need comedies, need laughter to make it through life. It's good medicine, does the heart good. But what does life seem more like to you? If happiness just seems like that's kind of how it's going for everybody, if it seems more like friends to you, if happiness is just kind of a given, then that means most likely you've had an enormously charmed life. You haven't lived long enough, or you haven't been paying close enough attention to what's been going on around you. But if, 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 if what Psalm 84 says seems impossible to you, then you haven't looked full in the face at the magnitude of what Almighty God in His Word in Psalm 84 tells you not once, not twice, but three times that happiness is possible. Staggering, isn't it? It is. It's enormous. So how is it possible? How does that look? Uh, How does that work? It's possible because of number two. There's a power for it here. Let's find it. See, Psalm 84, if you didn't know, was written by someone describing the experience of a Jewish pilgrimage, someone who's uh, making their way, lived a long way from Jerusalem, the center of worship, and they were on their way to worship there. Now, we really don't have sort of a modern-day equivalent to this in our culture, other than perhaps the, uh, the classic American parenting ritual of taking your kids to Disney World, right? Sort of a pilgrimage you make, or on a smaller scale, a, a difficult journey is like getting your small children ready for church, right? It's just strange cultural experience to get there on time. Anyway, all right. Now, it's likely the author here, he's made this journey before, and he's describing for you, for me, for us, how to make it on a long journey. And then he brings up all sorts of ways, ideas to do it. We'll come back to them in a moment. But what you can't miss here is one of the most striking, vivid images in all the Psalms of how happiness is possible. It's exactly in the middle, firmly in the middle, so you can't miss it. And this one verse shows you the power for happiness 
in your life, in your journey today, and it's this, it says this, it says, as they go, as journeyers go, as pilgrims go, as travelers go through the valley of Baca, they make it, they make it a place of springs, they go from strength to strength. What's this? The valley of Baca literally means the valley of of weeping, the valley of weeping. And commentators believe there must have been a place on this pilgrim's way, on this traveler's way, that was forsaken, that was alone, and was perhaps the place, the point of no return on his journey. He's, he's halfway from home, he's halfway to his destination, and here in the middle, in the valley, he begins to weep. Now we don't know why, but it doesn't matter, because here's the point. All pilgrims, all those who journey through life, go through life, will at some point travel through this place, through the valley of weeping. We've all got something to weep about, don't we? Some point. Pain of loneliness, a failed marriage, failing marriage, children who have gone off the rails, wars, news, shooting at a nightclub in Austin this morning. Death sentence from your doctor, maybe. I don't know, but we all have got something to weep about. And here you are, here we are, out in no man's land, in the valley of weeping. And yet it says this. It says there's a certain kind of person that can turn their tears into a spring. The happy person, this is saying, doesn't look to showers from above for lasting happiness. But they turn to the spring beneath them. And in doing so, they have an unending source of nourishment, sustenance, refreshing. See, the pilgrim, the godly person in this life, the traveler, you're not looking to the outside, to unpredictable, intermittent rain showers of good fortune, good health, good news, good money to quench your thirst, to prosper you, make you feel good. No, the happy person, this is saying, is independent. On a shower above, the happy person has got a spring beneath him. And this idea, this comparison of here, this subterranean water, the connection between that and a person's inner life, you see all through the Psalms. Think about Psalm 46.1. I love this. It says, there, again, here's a water, a water scripture. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now you got to ask, why would, why would a river, why would a stream going through a city make the city glad? Oh, here's why. Because a city with a stream running through it, catch this, isn't at risk from a siege on the outside. Cities had walls. I see a foreign power or army could approach your city, could surround your city, surround your walls, threaten it. But if you were a city, if you lived in a place that had a stream running through it, a stream below it, how would you feel when you saw an external force come against you? You'd probably feel maybe even a little happy. you feel glad. Why? Because your life's condition, while it's affected a bit by stuff on the outside, would not be fundamentally threatened. You could make it. You, you could grow crops no matter what. And that's what Psalm 84 is telling you. It says, while external things may affect you, they don't have to destroy you. This is telling you, here's the point, that the power for happiness comes from having your source of life in something deeper than you, something other than you, which now brings us to the incredible irony of the text. If you seek happiness first, you'll miss it. You'll miss it. You'll only end up weeping your way through life. 
failed circumstances, things going wrong over and over again. But if you seek something else first, which is what this psalm tells you, you can get happiness in the long run. To put it another way, happiness can only be gotten indirectly. You can't get happiness by going after happiness, but it can be gotten by having a source that's deeper than you. All right. How does that happen? How do we tap now into a spring below us so we avoid drawing our fundamental happiness from circumstances in life? How do we turn tears into a spring? Let's look at number three, the practice, the practice of happiness. There are conveniently for the preacher. Three keys here to happiness, to creating a spring below us. And you can see that from the the three sections in the psalm that all have a happy statement. There's a blessed statement here three times. And here, therefore, is how you practice Christian happiness from Psalm 84. First, it says we should long for home. Long for home. Verse 4 says, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. This is saying happy are those who dwell, uh, who put their hearts home in God's home. Hmm. He's really saying, the psalmist says, God, uh, I'm looking for a place to land my heart, to find happiness, and God, you're the only thing that's big enough for me. I don't know about you, but when I look inside myself, I look at all my desires in life, and I look at what I, what I want to have happen, what I don't want to have happen. I realize, maybe you have, that underneath all my longings is the longing for home, longing to be safe at home. And here's what I mean by that. I don't know if you've ever taken a trip and you've been gone from your, your loved ones or your friends or your family for a while, several days, and then you, you, you turn and you make your, you're trying to make your way back and you, you fight the lines and security or that terrible, awful God-forsaken Valley of Baca, the middle seat on a plane, on a flight, right? Um, you make it through that. You get in your car. You, you drive to your destination. You get there, but it's late, and everyone, though, has stayed up to greet you and meet you. You go through the door, and everyone runs to you, and they throw their arms around you, and they say, welcome home. We've missed you. We've missed you. And you know you're safe. See, no matter what's happened, what your trip has been like, what the past has been, it's all erased in a moment, the moment you come home, come home. So let me put it to you like this, in case you never heard it this way before. What your heart longs to hear the most are those same words, welcome home, I've missed you, your heart is safe with me. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that there is, as much as your heart longs to hear those words, there is a God who longs to say them to you as well. There's a God who longs to say to you, welcome home, my child. I have missed you. Your heart is safe with me. See, don't push away your longing. The psalm is saying, aim your longing, aim it. You were made with longings, this longing. You're a personal being. You know that these longings in your life, they're for more than just for survival, which is why, again, science and human reason alone can't answer the biggest questions your heart has. I mean, uh, Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, he said, if you stripped away everything else in the universe, you'd probably find at the center is just a math equation math equation at the center of it all. But how could a math equation 
produce you a personal being with longings, a longing for home. See, don't push away your longings, this is saying, to find happiness. Aim them. Drive them down. See, the reason, let me just tell you, the reason that we settle in life, the reason that you settle for, uh, for sin or that relationship or that guy or that girl or that job or for a lesser dream or you settle for telling a lie instead of the truth is because you believe deep down your deepest longings can't be met in God. You believe that. You say, how do I know that? Or how, excuse me, how do we do that? How do we aim that? How do we make our way home? Oh, look what the psalmist says here. He says, look at the birds. Oh, even the smallest bird, right? The swallow, the sparrow, they've got a home near God. The longings, he's saying, of even the smallest creature are met when they build a nest at the altar of God. You say, well, how does that produce happiness? Oh, listen, it produces happiness the same way coming home produces happiness. Because coming home into the heart of God, like a bird into its nest, has nothing to do with how your trip went, how many sales you made, how many A's you get. It's just got everything to do with being known and loved and belonging. Follow your longing for home into the heart of God. I encourage you, build a nest at the altar of God. Put down roots in his presence, pick up his word, and hear his voice say to you, welcome home, my child. I missed you. Your heart is safe with me. And by the way, if even the smallest creature has a special place, a seat at God's altar with its name on it, how much more do you and I have that as well? Second, it tells us to find happiness, as Psalm does. You don't just long for home, you carve a road. I love this, carve a road. It says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. But that to Zion part there is really just added on in English to give you context. But it's not really there. It should read like this. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose what? Heart are the highways. You may know. In Semitic poetry, when you get a couplet like this, the second line is a reflection of the first. It's another way of saying the first part. And this is telling you then that strength in God, happiness is God, comes from carving out and having roads to God in your heart. In your heart. This is really talking about what are called spiritual disciplines, everybody's favorite word there, discipline, and things like prayer, like fasting, worship, giving even. And, but there's one discipline in particular I'd like to highlight today, one road to carve and one way to dig that spring below you, and that's this. It's an ancient Christian practice, Psalm 62, called the practice of silence. Practice of silence. If you were here last week, you heard me reference a group of early Christians uh, in the second and third centuries called the Desert Fathers. And they were Christians who, when the Rome, city of Rome, empire of Rome, was at the height of its corruption, they moved out from Rome into the desert to form a counterculture to be able to hear the voice of God more clearly and speak it back into the culture. Now, they didn't get everything right, missed it in plenty of places. People even questioned the premise. But what they did get right was this. They learned that practicing silence before God and others produces a kind of counterintuitive strength 
and surprising happiness. One commentator I read about them said this. Said the mouth is not a door through which any evil enters. Man, I ought to like make my kids memorize that one. All right. The mouth is not a door through which any evil enters. The ears are such doors as are the eyes. The mouth is a door only for exit. What was it that they, the desert fathers, feared to let go out? What was it which someone might steal out of their hearts as a thief takes the steed from the stable when the door is left open? It can have been nothing else than the force of religious emotion. Here's what he's saying they understood, and what you should. That silence guards, hear this, the inner fire. Silence guards the inner fire. You got a fire on the inside of you as a Christian, the work of the Holy Spirit. And to guard it, Christians throughout history have said, you need silence. And man, does this seem strange today. Oh, it seems strange. I mean, the internet is basically built off of noise. Everybody talking, everybody writing, everybody sharing, producing words and voices all the time. And I'm all for sharing and talking and writing, if and you haven't noticed. But let me ask you, how much of your sharing, how much of our sharing and talking as a culture is birthed out of something good? And how much of it is just really compulsive, compulsive? One of the early Christians, uh, an Egyptian man named Diodocus, put the practice of silence like this. He said, when the door of the steam bath is continually left open, the heat inside rapidly escapes through it. Likewise, the soul, in its desire to say many things, lets out speech, even though everything it says may be good. Timely silence then is precious, for it is nothing less than the mother of wisest thoughts. This is tough. I get it. And being still before God, silent before God in a globally interconnected, busy world is about as hard as carving a road through the desert. But what this psalm is saying is true. Spiritual strength is having well-worn roads to God in your heart. And if you'll do this, not only will you be going against the grain of the whole world, you'll also be creating space for your best. This says your wisest thoughts. Look, here's how and why silence produces creativity and your best thoughts. When God made the world, Genesis 1, the most creative moment in the history of the universe, what did he speak out of? Silence. There was silence, then creation. And when Jesus came in the New Testament, it was after 400 years of silence between God and people. There was silence, you see. Then the new creation. So friends, church, long for home. Carve a road, second, and then third, third way to be happy here. It says to walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed, happy is the one who trusts in you. All right. Now this one, the third, the final key to happiness, the more I read it, the more I didn't like it. Because at first, this sounds like a real nice, you know, common Bible spiritual platitude. It looks like it's saying, you'll be happy If you walk uprightly, because if you walk uprightly, then God will love you and bless you unconditionally, right? God's love is conditional on your behavior. But then I began to look, and the word uprightly is a bad word. 
Because it doesn't just mean behave well. It means behave without blemish. Behave perfectly. It's literally saying, I mean, this is saying behave perfectly, walk perfectly in every way, and then God will love you. That's insane. How can I do that? How can I put on a perfect moral and emotional performance every day of my life? I mean, how can I walk without blemish at every moment? I can't. You can't. We can't. And therefore, what I want you to see about this third happiness statement is it's, it's kind of backing you into a corner on purpose. And it's really just not a help to you at all unless you see what it's pointing you to in the end, which is this, finally, number four, the person of happiness. Because the writer of the psalm here actually brings up and contrasts two people at the conclusion of the psalm, at the finale, and one is intentionally... And one is supernaturally. And seeing the first gives us the key to seeing the second and the key to the whole psalm. Look at this mysterious little verse near the end. It says this. It says, Oh God, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell where? In the tents of wickedness. And at first, again, this may sound like another way of saying it's better to be good than bad. Better to be in the, you know, a doorkeeper than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Doorkeeper, good. Tents of wickedness, bad. Until you realize who it is that's speaking here. I mean, who's speaking? Who's writing this psalm? Did you catch it? All the way back at the beginning in what's called the superscription. It's not David. It's not Moses. It says this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Who was Korah? Korah was a figure from far earlier in the Bible, during the time of the Exodus in the days of Moses, and Korah was a priest. Korah was a Levite in charge of leading worship, of leading people into God's presence. A good man, it seemed, but then Korah, oh, Korah, we see, he couldn't find happiness. Korah's heart, we read, though he was around God, though he was around God's presence, though he was a leader in his nation, though he knew everything about God, he substituted knowing about God, forever really knowing God. And here's what happened. Korah, we read, was perpetually insecure. Korah was always discontent, always wanted more position, more applause, more recognition. And it ate him alive. And after a while, it wasn't enough just to be a a leader uh, in God's nation, leading people towards God. Now, Korah had to have it all. And he accused Moses of the very thing he was guilty of, which was wanting too much power. And isn't it ironic, don't you think? And isn't that the way human beings are? We accuse other people of doing the same thing we're guilty of in our own hearts. See, Korah, he accused Moses of wanting too much power, not sharing leadership, even though it was Moses who had put him in his position in the first place over all the singers. And Korah, Korah incited a rebellion against Moses. And when Moses called Korah to come up and meet him and work it out and hug it out, Korah instead stirred up all the people in the camp while he stayed home, the Bible says, in front of his tent. And this is what the book of Numbers 16 says that Moses and God did next. It says, and he, Moses, spoke to the congregation saying, depart please from the tents of these wicked men 
and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They came out and stood at the door of their tents. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their household and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. And while this may seem harsh to you, I don't have time to talk about the justness, the rightness of what this was and what happened. Here's the point. Can you see? Korah's unhappiness in the end swallowed him up, swallowed him up. And where did it happen? Oh, in his tent of wickedness. What is a tent of wickedness? So a tent of wickedness is anything you make your heart's home in beside God. I mean, a a, a good thing can become a tent of wickedness. I mean, because in a sense, can you see, Korah wanted a good thing. Oh, he wanted to be a leader, influence people. He wanted just a little more leadership. Oh, but he didn't just want the thing for what it was. He wanted the thing to be his heart's home and his happiness His heart's home and his happiness weren't in God. They were in his position. And positions are good. Relationships are good until they turn into ultimate things like everything else. Relationships are a good thing until it becomes a thing you have to have to feel okay, to be secure. And the thing that you put your happiness in besides God, it just swallows you up in an end because there's no end to it, no bottom to it. There are consequences that happened. You couldn't even have predicted. And that's what the writer of Psalm 84, this son of Korah, is pleading with us to see. Years later, centuries later, this distant descendant of Korah, he's looking back at his Levitical forefather and saying, oh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go down in a tent of wickedness. I don't want my heart's home and happiness to be in anything other than God. And the best way, he goes on to say, the best way I know how to do this is just to say, oh God, I'll stay on the outside. God, I'll stay on the threshold. I don't even dare to get into your presence. What the New Testament shows us is that there's something better than what this son of Korah could have possibly imagined. Because what the New Testament shows us is this. That centuries later, there was one who came. And he did what Korah and no other person could ever do. He trusted God perfectly. He walked uprightly, without blemish at every moment of his life. But, but what happened to that man? What happened to Jesus of Nazareth? Did he receive every good thing, any good thing from his father? No. He was a man of sorrows, despised and rejected. And though in reality, he was the ultimate tent. He was the ultimate meeting place between God and man. He was swallowed up. He went down into the ground, into the grave for all us chorus. All of us, little chorus, that we could go free from our tents. He lived a life we never could have lived. Died to death, we should have died. That the promise of Psalm 84 could come home, be true for us today. And now, if you're a Christian, you can go to him and say, oh God, I know you are not withholding any good thing from me today because of Jesus, because he walked uprightly. He lived without blemish. See, to be a Christian in this world, church, is to have your happiness buried and to keep on burying it in a spring not of this world, and therefore you got something this world can never take away, ever take away. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, 
18 years old, preached his very first sermon on this subject. I'm sure far better than the one you just heard. He called it On Christian Happiness. And here were his three points. He gave three reasons why Christians can and should be the happiest people in the world. And these things hang on my office, the wall of my office. I read them every day. He said this, first, your bad things will turn out for good. Your good things can never be taken away from you. And number three, your best things are yet to come. Oh, church, all these are ours. They're true for us in the gospel. Let's pray as we close.